Welcome to this special episode of Neod Rewind. In this episode, we talk with various international scholars on the topic of doing research on mass displacement caused by extremely violent conflicts. My name is Anne van Maurik and I make this podcast together with Thijs Bouwknecht. Some of the most pressing current challenges in the world are the various crises of mass displacement caused by these extreme violent conflicts in the Middle East, Asia and Africa. Europe's migrant crisis is getting worse by the day. A migrant crisis spiraling out of control. Hundreds of thousands of asylum seekers are risking everything. A human wave washing over Europe's southern shores. Hundreds of thousands of migrants have streamed into Europe, the largest influx there since the end of World War II. Refugees, migrants, but also displaced persons or stateless persons. That's how we, in the administration and the public debate, categorize these people on the move. However, these terms are part of a legal and political discourse. So for scholars on mass displacement in the context of war and mass violence, this legal language and political language limits the view on the experiences of people on the move. How do we as scholars come closer to the perspective of the people on the move and not see their experiences in this discourse of the administrators? It sometimes seems as if the moment we can categorize someone, say, for instance, this is a true refugee, that we know how to deal with it. And we, I mean people in Europe or people in the US, then we can say like, oh, this, that means that these laws are applicable and these aren't. This is Ismay Tamus, program leader, war society at the NEOT. One of the things she focuses on in her research is refugee crisis and forced migration. So categorization makes things possible, but it also means that we are continually reproducing these categories. And it's maybe of, of, for a good reason, because for instance you want to define uh, who is uh, uh, eligible for a certain help, but when studying these phenomena and when trying to understand what's, what, what is going on in these places, what, what, what the experience of the people who are experiencing it at the moment, the violence, the, 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 the displacement, it very often isn't of any help. What they experience is not whether or not they are uh, within the categories of article, I don't know, 13a. Yeah, of course. <laughs> they, yeah. they, they have a life experience. We limit ourselves immediately by reproducing, in this case, often legal categories and thus reinforcing them. Instead of trying to get beyond them or seeing them as applicable to a certain aspect of the whole phenomenon, but maybe not to different aspects of it. And I think this is one of the, one of the tricky things when, when you want to uh, uh, study these kinds of, 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 of yeah, experiences, that people around you also expect you to yeah, be part of this categorization machine, that you will come up with solutions, that you will help managing the crisis, <laughs> or uh, on the other end of the scale, that you will become uh, part of the activist movement which are all, you know, <laughs> uh, good things in itself, perhaps, I don't know, but it may not be what, what, what is needed in order to, to better understand what is happening in, in, in the various uh, places in the world and uh, what it means 
to the rest of <laughs> humankind yeah. uh, to deal with these issues and to, to understand the experience of people instead of categorizing them as soon as possible, as quickly and as efficient as possible yeah. within a legal structure yeah. and then sort it out. So, as scientists, we must prevent us from accepting these categories indiscriminately. The question that pops up right now is why is migration studies then called migration studies? I mean, the term migration is precisely such an example of a word with political and legal meaning. How do the different scientific disciplines that deal with displacement reflect on their use of this political and legalized discourse? I talk about this with Christophe Raas from the Institute of Migration Research and Intercultural Studies of the University of Osnabrück. In migration studies, at least in Germany, there, for a couple of years, there's been a turn towards what we call the reflexive migration studies. And that would, for instance, mean that, first of all, we have to call, ask ourselves, why, we are, why are we calling us as a discipline migration studies? Um, at the same time, we know that migration is a culturally and socially determined translation of something else, like mobility. Um, so, <clears throat> I just, at, at, from, a, from a certain position, you could say, um, migration studies as a discipline has been has evolved as something that very much helps to reproduce the nation-state and its power hierarchies. Um, so how can we de-essentialize our central categories like migration, belonging, culture, society in order not to reproduce the the object we're researching as the object. The migrant yes. is the migrant, the refugee is the refugee. But still try to understand the, this phenomenon. Um, so, uh, and the reactions to that challenge are, are multiple. Um, historians would say, well, okay, so let's get back, in, back to the deep history of this. You know, how did we get to this hegemony mm -hmm. of, certain, um, of certain terms and categories? Or you could say, well, let's look at the history of our discipline, right? Where are we coming from? Why, why haven't we not, not before asked, um, you know, where did we take the wrong turn and begin to reproduce, right? To reproduce the nation state and its world. Um, or you can say, well, we have to become activists, right? So we can't just be the cold-blooded academics trying to understand. We have to get involved. We have to get into society. Um, and have to sort of come up with new ways of collaborative learning interactions, like a, not just an interdisciplinary, but more of a transdisciplinary um, way of, of, of trying, to, trying to do our work with society with the aim of actual problem solving in terms of changing the ways that we perceive things and then do things. And what do you think? Well, <laughs> I, it, is, it is a very hard question because at the end, I think academics have a very specific role. So we have to be careful not to mix up and totally blur being active citizens and being academics trying to employ a certain rigor in understanding society, always in order to, you know, to change society. Um, so, so it's a bit of a mix. Um, at this point, I think we have to better understand the long durée of how we came to see things and do things and construct things. We have to educate ourselves 
about the path dependencies that brought us here in terms of calling refugees refugees, Italian Sunni Islam, migrants migrants, and to understand that the attempt to order things through policy and the ways that societies have to renegotiate themselves as they become more diverse through mobility are two different things, right? We cannot solve this problem of understanding who we are by employing fairly simplistic political concepts mm -hmm. in, that are designed to sort of um, order, bring order to something we're afraid of, like diversity and mobility and migration and the other. To connect research on war, mass violence and genocide with migration research in order to deepen the dialogue between the two disciplines, the NEOD and the Institute for Migration Studies of the University of Osnabrück organized an international conference named Negotiating Displacement, New Perspectives in War, Migration and Refugee Studies. What I'm really curious about is what does this word negotiating in this context mean? One of the reasons that we chose this, um, this title of our, our workshop, Negotiating Displacement, is that we really want to uh, alert people, and ourselves as well, to the fact that it's never a one-way process. Even the most repressive legal structure or state structure, it's always the dynamics that are imported. In this case, for instance, uh, when you look at the refugee uh, regime, as it is called, so how are people being documented or registered, what, uh, you know, what kind of categories are within these files. Mm -hmm. Just to give a very clear example, when we did a project on the, um, on the uh, files of displaced persons just after the Second World War, so it's people in Europe who have been displaced because of, of Nazi persecution and forced labor, and then it's the end of the war, and there are all these millions of Europeans who are displaced and who, um, uh, who go to, to improvised camps where the Allied forces try to uh, help these people out, help them repatriate or resettle. And of course, they, they want to know who these people are. Mm -hmm. Maybe they are collaborators, maybe they are Nazis. So they want to filter out the true DPs and the people who yeah, are not the true DPs, so yeah. the Germans and displaced the Nazis. Persons, yeah. yeah, the displaced persons. So we did this project, uh, we, we took these, these old files from the 1940s and we looked very carefully at what exactly is written down about the people who came to these uh, DP camps, to these displaced persons camps. So it's the name, of course, of the, of, 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 uh, the person, it's, it's also religion, it's nationality, it's where have you been in the previous war years, can you substantiate that, where were you before that, what about your family, who is with you, where do you want to go, where do you not want to go. Mm -hmm. And so we had these very clear forms with, with categories that were made by the uh, allied organizations the, uh, the, and, and later the IRO, the refugee organization of that, of that time, in order to manage this problem of all these millions of people who are moving around in Europe and who, who post a, a threat, they thought. So it's not necessarily what we as uh, scholars would use as categories, but it's what they use because they thought this will help us manage this, 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 this problem. And at the same time, the people who were asking for help, 
they of course knew that. They knew when I, when I say I'm a Soviet citizen, they will send me back to the Soviet Union. Yeah. Some people would be okay with it, but many were not okay with it. They didn't want to go back to the Soviet Union. Yeah. So they would say, well, I lived in the Soviet Union, but I am uh, Ukrainian or I... Uh, so they focused more on an ethnicity than on a legal citizenship, for yeah. instance. They will say whatever it takes to yeah. get what they want. So you see how, how, how there is this very clear structure, but there's also the people trying to negotiate with this structure. So they come from a certain point. They, they, they are released from a labor camp, for instance. So it, you know, it's not people coming from a strong position of negotiation, but they still they have a sense of agency. They know if I say this to this administrator, yeah it will probably lead to a consequence that I don't want. Yeah. If I want to uh, be uh, able to emigrate to uh, overseas, uh, then maybe I should stress that I'm such a staunch anti-communist. Or maybe I should focus on uh, my family being persecuted right now in uh, communist-dominated Poland. Yeah. So people try to think of what will help me navigate this system. Yeah. So this is a process of negotiation because the, also the administrators, they, they want two things. They want the truth, so they want you know, that they're, what in, what's in the files is correct, but they also want the system you know, working. Yeah. So they as well sometimes think like, okay, um, well, let's move this person into that category or move him or her out of that category. And sometimes you even see that a whole bunch of people is in one movement <laughs> uh, taken from one category to, to the other. An example that we discussed in, in our project, for instance, is the example of the uh, Mennonite community from the Soviet Union, yeah. who were, when that part of the Soviet Union was occupied by Nazi Germany, were seen as ethnic Germans. But after, <coughs> after the defeat of, of Hitler, they presented themselves to the uh, IRO, so the, the, the organization that helped repatriation and resettlement, presented themselves as people of Dutch descent. Being German wouldn't help them. <laughs> they wouldn't be eligible for, for help. But being Dutch, because of their religion, it suddenly made them uh, a, a group worthy of, of help and of resettlement. Yeah. So that's, that is what we mean when we say negotiating displacement. How can we study uh, not only what's happening in this violent context, but also how people respond to it, how these big international organizations respond to it, but also how people on the ground respond to it, how they try to understand what, what is helpful and what is unhelpful yeah. to them to, in order to uh, be as safe as possible. Research to displacement in the context of World War II shows that this negotiating actually can save your life or buy you time, Christoph knows. So we did a study on a famous painter from Osnabrück, Felix Nussbaum, who was from a Jewish family. And he um, is driven out of Germany by the Nazis and he seeks refuge in Belgium and he lives for several years also in hiding in Brussels. 
And he goes around to different municipalities in Brussels and he re-registers as a foreigner everywhere. He, go, he always goes to a different municipality and that buys him a lot of time in Brussels before he's apprehended and then taken to Auschwitz and eventually killed with almost his entire family. So we can use this example as, you know, if we see this as a survivor story, that is a very clever strategy to survive. If the Syrian refugee who doesn't get asylum status does the same thing, we don't give him that credit, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. we, we have a lot of reasons in thinking and rethinking history. We find, that we find a lot of reasons to sort of apply what we, what we see there to the way that we perceive the situation today. And in very many instances, that could make us relax a bit. Okay, so in short, how I see it is that we can see negotiating displacement as a kind of game between this powerful state system of migration, which defines rules and rights, and on the other side, the people who are on the move. Being this person on the move, you'd better gain as much knowledge on this terminology, rules and rights, and negotiate yourself into this category, which gives you the best chances on surviving. That means that when studying violence-induced mobility, a critical eye towards the sources is needed, Ismay Tamis explains to me. Yeah, and I think that's one of the, one of the big risks, uh, that you, instead of actually uh, better understanding what has been happening and what, 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 what people experience, you start reproducing the system that created the sources. If you would just have looked at, okay, give us from these IRO files, all the people classified as, I don't know, uh, Roman Catholics, it would be their categorization. It would uh, make the, 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 the people concerned uh, invisible. We only see them through the lens of the administrators. And at the same time, we, we pretend unconsciously perhaps, but we pretend that this is who they are. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's what this organization at a certain moment in time wrote down about them, and in this, in this case uh, religion, what they deemed relevant and what they thought the person in front of them was saying to yeah. them. But, so what you quite often see in, in, in research and especially when you know when you have to work with this mass data all these hundreds and thousands of, of files that, that that also the researchers try to you know get as soon as possible to to categories that it can, that they can work with and then yeah. very often they uh, do so by reproducing the categories that the bureaucracy that created the sources uh, decided on, and I think that that's uh, yeah that, that 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 makes the actual situation as it you know as it was lived and experienced by all the people uh, involved back then. Also, the person writing down, all that, you know, the administrator in the camp, it it makes it completely invisible, and that also creates uh, the illusion that we can sort of copy paste practices from the past into the present that we can say like, oh, this is how they did it back then. And oh, it was sort of uh, yeah, uh, successful in a way. I mean, nothing too horrible happened according to these yeah. organizations. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we can copy paste it, you know, maybe adjust it a bit here and there. Yeah. And, you know, 
uh, learn the lessons from the past. And yeah. then you get into that, <laughs> that <laughs> trajectory and I think that's, that's very uh, dangerous for, for us as well, both for us as scholars but also for us as you know, citizens and, 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 and people involved in the, in the public debate about these issues. People negotiate their ways through displacement. Within this negotiation, what's actually the displaced person's agency? And to what extent and where is room for maneuver? And how do they find possibilities for creating their own social and cultural spaces within the limited and often harsh circumstances? Thijs Bouwknecht and I spoke with historian Anne Ervan from the Refugee Studies Center of the University of Oxford. She gives an example of how Palestinians in the Middle East refer to themselves as refugees because of the specific rights this gives them. However, this terminology is highly contested. The Palestinians themselves refer to themselves as refugees. Okay, okay so this is the starting point. They use the Arabic word lajri, which mm. means refugee. Um, but what's really crucial is that this was never seen by, by the Palestinians as an apolitical category. They always saw this as tied to their political rights and they saw the fact that they were refugees as a product of their rights having been infringed. Now in that sense, that's quite a different conceptualization mm. of the word refugee to how it's generally understood at the UN level, where it's totally about humanitarianism, welfare relief, right? So automatically there you see some contestations of what does this term really mean? And historically, over the decades, there was a continuous tension between Palestinian communities and the UN via UNRWA about the politicization of this category of the refugee. Um, the Palestinians, in particular, contested the fact that the UN would often refer to them as Arab refugees from Palestine, thus denying any notion of Palestinian identity. Mm. And that they would also frame the uh, refugee situation as solely a humanitarian problem. So, for example, after the 1967 war, the UN issued Resolution 242, which spoke about the refugee problem as uh, humanitarian. Now, at some point to counter this, the Palestinian nationalist movement, which by the late 1960s was led by Arafat's Palestine Liberation Organization, or the PLO, they started promoting an alternative terminology, which is returnee. And they said, we want, to, we want to refer to the refugees, not as refugees, but as returnees. Because there was a notion that the term refugee was being used to depoliticize the mm -hmm. Palestinians and that returnee, uh, first of all, obviously uh, prioritized the fact that they were going to return, but also posited them with agency. Um, so this is maybe another example of this contestation of terminology and yeah. what's loaded into it. But that's 1960s, 1970s. Mm -hmm. how, is it, how is it done now? How's it done now? So sorry, I'm a historian by training. So this is always very <laughs> stuff. Um, how's it done now? I think in many ways now um, there's actually a big focus on asserting refugee identity and the validity of uh, Palestinian refugee mm. identity because at the moment we have a situation of sustained uh, really attacks on Palestinian refugee rights, particularly at the hands of the Trump administration. Um, Jared Kushner, the senior advisor to Trump in the Middle East, has said repeatedly that he thinks there should be a reduction in the number of Palestinian refugees and in how many are recognized. So I'd say in some ways that's actually served to uh, 
politicize it, right? That That's sort of an yep. inherent acknowledgement of the fact that it, it is a political identity. Mm. And so nowadays, actually, there's quite a strong push towards acknowledging that they are refugees and um, speaking in those terms. So we have this problem of labeling. So capture people in categories of refugees, exiles, evacuees, migrants, etc. But it goes further than that. These words refer to questions of belonging and Irfan explains. In the context of statelessness, they lack, say, um, valid passports or valid national identity cards, which state citizens would use to verify what their national identity is. And the closest thing they have in any official form, at least for much of the later 20th century, was an official ID card from a UN body in the form of the UNRWA identity card. So that was seen as some kind of ver verification that they were Palestinian refugees. Um, otherwise, the only thing they had was plenty of them had Palestinian passports from pre-1948 Palestine, but they ceased being recognized after 1948, so they, they became, to all intent and purposes, valid. Although, again, many held on to them because of their symbolic value and they were seen as proving that they had, there had been a state of Palestine before 1948. Someone else who's researching the dynamics surrounding the process of negotiating displacement is historian and activist Eugène Michael. In his studies, he's looking at the way displaced persons interact with host communities because host communities are one of the actors that people on the move negotiate with, next to private entrepreneurs, the government and NGOs. How does this network of actors work? And what's important to keep in mind when researching this? The host communities have, are made up out of many different bodies, you know, kind of. So you have activists that are pro-refugee, for example, you have anti-refugee activists, you have many others who are in between and they are actually trying to serve their own interests. It's about power, for example, you know, like that kind of, uh, you know, or it's about how they perceive the identity of their place and they see this identity changing and they want to intervene in one way or another. So some of these actors work with each other, some of these actors work against each other, but they are all aware of each other's presence. It's quite a complex network, uh, kind of, there. it's a web of relationships and kind of um, a network, some power relationships. Some of them against or some of them kind of, some of them with each other working. Um, a point that I'm making in my kind of, I made in my presentation is that actually all that network is kind of goes rather unregistered. Partly this is a result of the archival kind of limitations or our own personal kind of connections to the stories as researchers. Um, there is a lot of research, for example, on aid agencies on the ground and how they interact with the locals and the refugees. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right? But in relation to the locals, how they interact with the kind of, kind of agencies and with themselves, you know, so a local centered kind of approach is actually still absent. And we tend to oversimplify local attitudes, seeing them as falling very easily into an either opposition or solidarity kind of approach. And if we look much closer, we see that actually, yes, we do have solidarity, we do have opposition, but we also have kind of um, much more 
kind of varied relationships, that if we become aware of them, they can, then we can work with them better. Because one of my arguments is that actually host communities are forgotten, not just by the scholars, but by also by the politicians, which is one of the problems. The fundamental question in this context is how people on the move experience their way through societies and across borders. How do they address bureaucratic or academic categorization? How do they address opposition, violence, exploitation and rejection in their encounters with their network of governments, NGOs, host communities, etc.? And as a scholar, how to gain this kind of knowledge? I asked historian Avi Sharma from the Center of Metropolitan Studies in Berlin. There's actually the German Historical Institute um, has a blog which is quite interesting on this topic called Migrant Knowledge, um, which is worth checking out. And I have a piece coming out in their publication early next year, in early 2020. Um, and it's a project, their project, and, and something that I've worked on a little bit is trying to recapture this question of what it is migrants know, how they mobilize knowledge, how it is we can um, validate that very, very important knowledge. If we're interested in how people survive, yes. right? Yeah. Um, the amazing act of survival, right? Then understanding how it is people do that, what they have to learn in order to do so is an extraordinarily important thing. Yeah. Um, and it's tough to do. I mean, for me, I think, you know, the question of sources is quite difficult because you don't, I think if you ask migrants or displaced persons or refugees, what is it that you know and ha what have you learned? Exactly, yeah. You come out with potentially not the most interesting answers, though you might get interesting answers. Um, and so from me, from a methodological standpoint, I've sort of tended to work from you know, a classical kind of functionalist perspective, which is to say, what is it that actually happens, yeah. right? What can we observe? in a particular environment, whether that's a camp or a city yeah. or whatever. Um, and how is that the same and different than what happened before, right? What resources have been mobilized to do that kind of work of survival? Avisha Amar's answer leads us to the question we started this podcast episode with. How do we as scholars come closer to the perspective of the people on the move? And how can we open up new ways of thinking and of responding to violence-induced mobility? You will hear Ismay Tamas of the NEOT. I think we can, can get beyond the labeling. I mean, the first step is to actually recognize the labels and say like, okay, this is a label created by this actor in this context, in this place, this time, to this purpose. And which is a way of uh, uh, distancing yourself from you know, what has been happening there. And, and it will also enable you, I hope, to uh, look for different ways of, of looking, different ways of, of exploring. And of course the big question then is how, how can you get to uh, understanding an experience that is not or has not been documented by those who actually experienced it. For instance, that the displaced persons I, I talked about, the people in, in Europe after the, after the Second World War, some of them may have you know, written letters or diaries or left something that we can study as, 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 a, as, a, as an historical source, but many of course haven't. And I mean, when you look at people in, 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 in other times and other places in the world, I mean, it's not, it's not logical to expect 
extensive <laughs> archival sources as uh, historians usually uh, use. So I, I, I think that would be one of the, one of the uh, challenges for us, how to work with sources that go beyond the official sources, how to, how, how to make ourselves um, uh, sensitive to these sources, how to talk to people in different ways than just trying and then just inviting them to, re to present themselves as, uh, as a refugee or as a, a victim or how, how, can, how can we uh, um, find ways within our own methodologies of, of, of dealing with uncertainties and of actually finding within these uncertainties a deeper understanding of what's happening and what's, uh, what people have experienced and are experiencing. And that will not lead to uh, an answer or a conclusion or a, a toolbox, <laughs> but it will hopefully help us um, keep our focus on the experience of violence and of the humanity of all the people involved. And I think when we have that focus, then also the policymakers and the activists and everyone involved can start thinking about okay so but what does that mean how can we work from this from from insights into this experience keeping in mind that we're all human beings how can we work towards a better, a better way of dealing with uh, with these issues